In your Bible to this morning, the book of Haggai, chapter number one, Haggai. Did you know there's a Bible book by that name? And I'll give you extra time to find it this morning. Usually I've been saying Genesis or Revelation or John or something, Haggai. That's over at the end of the Minor Prophets, and it's on page 956 (laughs) in my Bible. Okay. (laughs) The book of Haggai. Haggai was a prophet in the Old Testament. Okay, as soon as you find it, stand with me, if you will, please. The book of Haggai, chapter number one. And let me read to you from God's word today, beginning in verse three, Haggai chapter one and verse three. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? What he's asking there is the sealed houses had the idea of paneled houses, which in that day were luxury houses. This would have been fine mansion type houses. And this house that he's referring to there is the Lord's house. So he's saying, is it time for you to dwell in a very beautiful, beautiful home yourself and let the Lord's house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a hole, into a bag with holes. And that's my subject this morning. Does your bag have holes? Does your bag have holes? Is that not a very descriptive phrase that brings up all kinds of pictures in your mind? A bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the Lord's house. And I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You look for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it or blow it away. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because my house, representing their spiritual life, is waste, and you run every man into your own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed with you, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. In other words, God says, I'm not blessing you like I would like to bless you. Thank you, and you may be seated. So when you think of a bag full of holes, a bag with tears in it, and you think of putting your money into a bag like that, and then you keep wondering, where did it all go? And I wonder if that isn't a great illustration of the way that many of you might feel about your financial life as a family. We're having this series on the family And today, the subject is the family's finances, the finances of the family. Does it not feel like sometimes in your family life that your bag has holes in it, that uh, you make money, you go to work, and uh, yet you don't seem to ever get ahead? It always seems like 
money's going somewhere, and I'm not sure where it's going. Now, there are a few things we would all agree today more important than money. In fact, Jesus gave us about 38 or 39 parables. And of them, the vast majority, more than three-fourths of them, dealt in some way with their concept of the idea of money. Don't think that God is not interested in your money. As we say in our world today, money makes the world go round. Everywhere you go, they want your money, don't they? And so you've got to have money. It's an essential part of life. Few things are more important than money. And interestingly, since we're talking about family life, the number one cause of conflict in marriages is what? It's money. More people end up in a divorce court because of disagreements over money, and that disagreement spirals downhill into other disagreements, and before long, there is bad feelings and terrible things happen. So let's talk about money. Let's talk about your bag. Let's close up some holes in it today. Now, I'm aware that in a session in a morning service, and this is rather unusual for me to do anything like this, but I don't know how to talk to you about your family life and leave out the subject of money. There is nothing that is more relevant and potentially helpful to you than the subject that I'm about to speak on today. And I'm, I'm going to be very, very practical today, but I'll, I'll be very biblical. Don't worry about that. And so I'm going to give you about, uh, how many do I have here? About six things. Some of them I'm going to spend time on. Some of them I'm going to go over very briefly. Number one, establish a budget. Establish a budget. You say, does the Bible talk about budgeting? It does in principle, and I'll show you here in just a few moments. But let's talk about budgeting. You mentioned the word budget to people, and I've got long years of experience doing so. And people turn purple, and they fidget, and they sputter. And some of the things I've heard are like this. Well, I don't think that's necessary, preacher. I know where my money goes. And uh, I always want to say, would you like to make a little wager on that? If you don't have a budget, I would dare say you don't know where all the money is going. Then I've had people say, oh, but that's so boring. And I've had others just say, I hate budgeting. Does that express anybody's feeling here today? Don't raise your hand, of course. <laughs> I had one fellow say to me, it won't do me any good to have a budget. I need to make more money. And I've already got it all spent, so why do I need a budget? And I thought, you above all people need a budget because you need some goals about what you're going to do as you make your money. I want you to think about your family as if your family is on a long, long journey. A journey that's going to last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, a long time. And I want to ask you, what kind of financial plans do you have for that journey? What's your financial plan for the journey of life for your family? And here's the way I imagined it. 
Uh, in my mind, I picture going down to Charleston and I go out there to the harbor and I see a big, beautiful ship out there and they're getting ready to set sail. And there's a guy there dressed in white and he has a hat on and little uh, stripes on his shoulder and I figure he must be the captain. So I walk up to him and say, Captain, let me talk to you about your journey here that you're, you're getting ready to sail. And he said, right. I said, well, where are you headed? He said, well, we're just going to try to stay afloat this time. And I say, well, uh, Captain, how long are you going to be floating? And he says, well, I don't know for sure, months, maybe years. Captain, I ask you another question. Which direction are you going? Well, I'm not really sure. We're just going to go out there and find a current, and we're going to drift on it. Now, by now, you're probably saying, you're not talking to the captain. But let's imagine for my story here that we are talking to him. Captain, do you have enough supplies for the trip to feed all the people and for them to have water and the necessities of life? Well, I'm not sure. I hope that we have enough supplies on board. You'd say, I don't want to sail with that captain. That guy's crazy. That guy shouldn't be in charge of the ship. And yet I want to tell you, everything I said there applies to families. I hope not to yours. Where are you headed? We're just trying to stay afloat. How long will you be going on this trip, this family journey? Well, I'm not sure for a long time. Which direction are you going? Well, we're just kind of drifting right now because we don't have enough money to do everything we want to do. Well, do you have enough supplies? Well, I sure hope so, Pastor. And that little story to me just puts into perspective the uh, situation so many find themselves in. Now, where in the Bible would I turn to find the case for making up a budget? Well, I could turn you to many passages over in the Proverbs. There are many verses there that talk about making plans and uh, preparations for whatever venture it may be in life. But I want to turn you to just one that the Lord Jesus himself gave us. It's in the book of Luke, chapter number 14. And it's a familiar passage, but oh, how we need to dig into it and understand it. Luke, chapter 14, and I look at verse 28. And Jesus said, For which of you, intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest, haply, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, he starts the project and he cannot finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him. They scorn him, they ridicule him. Aha, there's the guy that started on a project and never finished it. I've seen some of those, haven't you? Uh, that fellow built a house about two-thirds of the way in my neighborhood, and then he left it. The weeds grew up around it. It was an eyesore for years and years and years and years. Finally, they came and bulldozed it down. And uh, I've driven by many buildings in my lifetime that somebody started halfway or three-fourths through. They abandoned the whole project. There was a lot of apartment buildings over there on the coast in Myrtle Beach that uh, they were well into the construction phase, and the recession came along in 2008, and you could drive by great apartment complexes with several hundred units, and they were just there. The grass is growing up, and you thought, what kind of 
man and what kind of project and what kind of planning was involved in that. And some of them are still sitting there rotting down even today. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Make sure you have enough to finish before you begin the project here. In verse 30, he said, people will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish the job. Now apply that to your family life this morning. And think of your family's finances as the tower that you're building, and you're going to be building it out the rest of your married life together. Your family finances are your tower, and your budget is the blueprint. And what person would build a house or a commercial building or a tower or a family and not even have a plan and not even have a blueprint? Up there, I have a copy of a monthly income and expenses statement. And I told you I was going to try to be very, very practical. This is the one that uh, Brother Clayton uses in counseling with people about finances. And it's um, your monthly income and expenses. It's got everything. I looked at it. It's very, very, very thorough. And you turn it over on the back, and it tells you the expenses the percentages and so on. Now, obviously, I'm not a financial counselor and uh, I'm I'm just a a Baptist preacher. But I had that copied and printed in there. There's about a thousand or two of them out there, probably enough for every family here to get one. They're over here on this end of the foyer and they're down here on this end. I hope you'll pick one up on your way out the door. Even though you may be an expert in this, you might learn something. You might find something that'll probe your thinking and help you in your family finances. And even if you think you don't need a budget, maybe you're making millions, I don't know. But you know what? If you'll budget your money, you'll find out that you will use your money so much more efficiently and you'll actually have more money than you thought if you're in the kind of position that I've just described. So number one for your family's financial life, it is biblical according to Jesus to make plans about your financial life, building your financial life. Number one, then establish a budget. Number two, you knew what I was going to say. I'll just go ahead and say it and get it out of the way. Tithe. Number two, tithe. Why tithe? Because God said so. That's the best reason I can give you. And I'm not going to spend time on that because every year we do financial uh, emphasis and stewardship here. I just simply want to say this. You will do better on 90% with the blessing of God on your life than you will 110% and ignoring the Lord along the way. I tithe because I believe the Bible teaches tithing. Now, I have people want to debate with me. Is it 5%, 10%, or what is it? I've never had anybody argue with me that it ought to be more than 10%. (laughs) Interestingly, I've had all these people argue about 10%. I've never had anybody say, I think it ought to be 20%, Rev. So uh, I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of it except to say you will do better with 90% and the blessing of God on your life than you will do with 110% and neglecting the Lord's bless, uh, neglecting the Lord in your life. 
Tithing honors God. The scripture teaches that. Number three, the Gray's already quoted this. Go to the book of Proverbs chapter 22, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse seven, and it talks about debt. And number three is avoid debt. Avoid debt. Proverbs 22 and seven, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. What I want you to see there is that debt, unmanageable debt, is a form of bondage. It puts you in servitude. It puts you in slavery, if you will. Now, debt is not always bad in every circumstance, but you surely need to weigh what you're, what you're thinking about and what you're talking about. For example, very few of us would own a home if we, had, if we, could, if we were required to go out and pay cash for the home, or at least we wouldn't own the home until we were 60 or 70 years old and we had to accumulate all that money to own a home. So in that sense, debt is, is not a bad thing. If we're putting money into appreciating assets like a home that in all likelihood, the price is going to go up and it's going to be more valuable than it was the day you bought it, then probably that's a good thing if you can afford to make the payments. When debt becomes a stranglehold around us and and, and we become slaves and servants to the debt is when we are faced with payments that we can't make. And then not only do we feel an emotional pressure, but very frankly, we can harm our testimonies and destroy our influence for the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, there's a difference in investing in a home. Buying a home really is investing, isn't it? I, you wouldn't even look at that as the, the consumer debt. But boy, the credit cards and all the stuff that is part of American life today, the weekend trips that you just say, hand them the plastic, you know, and we'll just pay for that. We'll worry about that later. But going out and eating when we really can't afford it, or we just don't feel like doing cooking at home or whatever. Those type of consumable expense or debts, before long they pile up. You would not believe, and I don't want to ever um, break anyone's confidence, but you will not believe some of the problems of credit card debt that we've dealt with with members in our church trying to help people. And so I would say to you, use that credit card sparingly. Use it for pray about your expenditures and above all get that budget established and begin to live within it and you'll find out that you'll have more money that way somebody said America today we're trying to people are trying to keep up with the Joneses and they describe keeping up with the Joneses like this buying what we don't really need with money that we don't have to impress people we don't like Now, keeping up with the Joneses is an old-fashioned phrase. 
Now it's keeping up with what my friends are saying on Facebook. And remember, on Facebook, nobody ever puts anything bad about themselves. They paint this idealistic life. Oh, wonderful weekend in the mountains and at the beach. Look at our new Escalade and they go on and on and on. It's life like people want you to think. It's a PR campaign. It's polishing my image to people. You never put on their awful headache. My wife is mad and grouchy. You'll not read that on there. No, it's hashtag blessed. And it's telling you how great, everybody's doing great, right? And if you're not careful, you'll get sucked into that. And before long, it'll be showing up in your finances. Number one, establish a budget. Establish a budget. (laughs) Establish a budget. Number two, tithe. Number three, avoid debt. Number four, oh, now I'm going to go to preaching. Go to Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24. And some of you are not going to like this. In fact, some of the men are really not going to like this. Genesis 2.24, God said they were male and female, and he married them, and he said, you're now to become one flesh. One flesh. That means more than a physical relationship as I've been preaching and teaching over the months past. It means that we're totally united in everything. And so number four is combine your bank accounts. Do I need to duck? Combine the bank accounts. Why do you do, why would I say that, Pastor? Because Genesis 2, 24, one flesh, one flesh. Everything we can do to bring, out, to bring about unity in our family and in our marriage, we want to do. Marriage counselors, not just people here on our staff who counsel with me, but experienced, nationally recognized marriage counselors that I've got their books in my library almost say unanimously, there is nothing better to bring unity to a marriage than unifying and combining the bank accounts. Because when you combine the accounts, think about what happens. When you combine your bank accounts, you're sharing your hopes, your dreams, your fears. We talk about intimacy in marriage. We don't just mean physically. We mean in every point. How could you have intimacy in your relationship with your wife or husband and at the same time be hiding your whole financial life when your financial life is one of the most important parts of your life? And believe me, over and over and over, we've dealt with situations here through the years ministering to people where that's where real problems started. You see, when you combine your bank accounts, it's a powerful indication that you trust each other. You say, see, my wife knows everything about what I do with my money. And I know everything that she does with our money. And she does more with our money than I do with our money. No, you see, we don't have any secrets about the money. 
So she can tell that I went to Walgreen yesterday. And that brings us together in a financial unity. And, and in other ways, it indicates we trust each other. I can't think of but three reasons why people would not want to do this. And yet we found out, boy, a lot of people push back here. We're being told before we get married in many cases, don't you ever trust a man with all your money. You always keep a little piece of money for yourself. And that kind of philosophy. You don't want to enter into a marriage relationship, do you, where you don't trust the other person with your financial well-being? Three reasons I think that people don't combine their bank accounts. One, somebody's hiding behavior or activities from their spouse. Over and over, I've seen that. I've, I've seen a situation where a person was an invertebrate gambling addict and hid it for years from his wife. And she would always wonder, where is the money? We make too much money to not have anything in the account. And somehow he'd figured out a scheme where he didn't show that he was gambling that money. People have had affairs and hid the expenditures that they were expending on that affair because they had a separate account altogether. Hiding behavior or activities from your spouse. Secondly is an unhealthy level of independence. That uh, I don't want to be dependent on my spouse. Well, very frankly, my friend, you shouldn't have married him. It's a little late for that right now. We are dependent. We are one flesh. Isn't that what the scripture teaches over and over? And what does it mean if it doesn't mean that? And so, and number three would just be a lack of trust. So all the marriage counselors say, Dave Ramsey puts a big stress on this in his Financial Peace University. First thing let's do, let's get a budget. And next thing let's do, let's bring all these bank accounts together and learn to trust each other and depend on each other and love one another and be transparent in our lives with one another. Combine the bank accounts Number five, beware of covetousness. Now, this one is not the practical one that all the others have been thus far. But I go to the book of Luke, chapter number 12, and I would like for you to turn there with me for this one because I want you to see it with your own eyes. Beware of covetousness. Number one, we're going to establish a budget as a family. Number two, we're going to tithe. Number three, we're going to begin to work to avoid debt only except for appreciable assets, investing things, and so on. And number four, we're going to combine our bank accounts. And number five, we're going to learn what the Bible teaches about the sin of covetousness. Honestly, we have a meeting with the staff before the service. And at 15 after, our guys come into my office and we all pray for about five minutes together. We talk about the service and some special needs that might, we might know about and we pray for them. And this morning, some, one of the men said, well, what are we preaching on today? And I said, I'm preaching on finances. And we chatted a minute. And then I said, well, there's one part of it that people haven't heard, I know. And that's the part I'm going to preach a whole section on 
covetousness. Covetousness. I really don't think the average Christian in America ever gives that a thought. In the book of Luke, chapter number 12, and in verse number 15, Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Beware of covetousness. And then he gives, there's a warning, isn't it? Beware, that's a warning. And then the reason for the warning is that our lives don't consist of all the material things that we can accumulate. Let me define covetousness for you because it is so rarely you even hear the subject mentioned. I read a story one day where a Roman Catholic priest was an old man and was retiring now from the priesthood. And here's what he gave. He gave this testimony. And I've, I've told you this before. He said, I estimate that in my lifetime, I have heard 50,000 confessions from the people in my parishes. And there's one sin I have never heard one person ever confess. What turned out to be what? Covetousness. Now, that, is that not passingly strange when it's one of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> I mean, is this pretty important? It's made the Big Ten, man. It's one of the ten things that Jesus talked about in terms of commandments. And the priest said not one time in all these years, 50,000 confessions of people's sins, not once did I hear anybody mention that they had ever committed the sin of covetousness. The truth is, other than the first commandment, it might be the most often broken commandment in this church. I would have to confess to you that I have to deal with the sin of covetousness. Let me define it for you. And I I spent a lot of time trying to find good, solid definitions because I don't think we clearly understand it as a whole. What is covetousness? It is an intense appetite, an inordinate and excessive desire without regard for the rights of other people. It is ungoverned craving and passion for things, for more. And as I said, I don't think the average Baptist Christian in America even thinks about it, much less thinks that it is serious, though it's in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and 17, thou shalt not covet. And it goes on and tells us what? And it means your neighbor's house, his wife, his farm animals, and on and on. And farm animals were the wealth of people in that day. So don't covet your neighbor's wealth. And over and over, you find it in the Bible. It's mentioned scores and scores of times. And now Jesus gives us a warning. What is the warning? Beware. Beware. He's speaking to his disciples. Beware. Warning. Be cautious about covetousness. Why is covetousness, covetous, uh, or coveting, why is coveting such a serious thing? 
In the book of Colossians, I'm not going to turn there if you want, just write down the reference. Verse 5 and 6, it says mortify in our King James Bible, which means to kill, to put to death, and it names a whole list of sins, and right in the middle of it is covetousness, which it says kill, mortify, put to death, covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Covetousness is idolatry, the worship of idols. Now you say, how could that be? What's the worship of things? Isn't it interesting? The first commandment says to us, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. And then you go through the other commandments and you come to the 10th and the last one, thou shalt not covet. And it lists all those things to not covet. So the possibility is that the 10th actually leads to a violation of the first. Because when I have an inordinate love, an excessive love and desire for things of any kind, whatever they may be, When I have an excessive love for things, then I have displaced my love for God, who I'm to love with all my heart, soul, and mind. The tenth, when I violate the tenth, I've already violated the first, by definition here. But another reason covetousness is such a serious thing is it's a mother sin. By mother, I mean it gives birth to other sins. You see, covetousness, unlike some of the other sins in the Ten Commandments, is not an external thing. I can't look at anybody and say, you are coveting, because it's a matter of the heart. It comes from the inside of my life. I can hide my covetousness. I can't hide other sins. They're external. Nobody can know if my heart is absolutely filled with covetousness, but they can tell about other things. But it gives birth to all these other sins. And I've, I've thought about the sins that it gives birth to. You've all heard about the seven deadly sins, haven't you? The seven deadly sins, seven sins that through the centuries, Christian philosophers and theologians and, and people who study and write about ethics in the Christian life they have defined these seven sins as the deadly sins. Well, it's interesting that of the seven, covetousness is connected to five of the seven. For example, covetousness, that uncontrollable, ungovernable desire for things. Covetousness is related to greed. What is greed? It's coveting more and more Usually we think of money when we think of that. What about theft? No thief ever stole, but first the thief had committed covetousness in his or her heart. What about lust? When I look at the woman with the thoughts and desire for her that I should not have, it begins with an uncontrolled desire for something that is forbidden by God's word. What about envy? When I look at you, oh, look at that house, look at that car, look at whatever. Or what about gluttony? When I cannot control my appetites. 
You see, all of those flow out of covetousness, this uncontrollable, ungovernable desire. And it can go so far that we do violence to other people. So I go and buy me a a, a car, I buy me a lawnmower, and the person selling it to me cheats me. They know it's inferior. They know it's got problems and they jack the price up and they walk away and they're laughing behind my back. What is it that would cause the salesman to do that? Covetousness. You see, so it stands behind so many of the issues that we deal with in our life. It's just there. It's just silent. It's just lying dormant in our hearts. And the best Christians in my opinion, rarely ever give it a serious thought. Turn to the book of Mark chapter 7, please. Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about the things that come from within us, the condition of the human heart. And in Mark 7 and 20, he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed. And he lists all these things. Go to verse 22. Thefts, covetousness. And then in verse 23, all these evil things come from within. And that's what defiles the man covetousness. It's a mother's sin. It lies there in the heart, unrecognized and uh, unconsidered. And then it springs forth and it produces other problems. Now, let me be very practical then. Let's get back to our finances. Why is it that often people have money problems? Because covetousness controls their purchasing. Do you ever stop and pray about a purchase? Lord, is this your will for me to do this? Is it the time for me to do this? Or perhaps, Lord, I should be considering something else. Is this the priority purchase if I can't buy everything I want, which none of us can? And so you see, covetousness is standing back in the shadows where there's uncontrollable debt, greed, indulgence in lifestyle. One more time, turn in your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And these are words that we really ought to take heed to today, my friends. 1 Timothy 6 and 6. But godliness with contentment. Mm. Man, the whole world would love to have contentment. And the Bible teaches us that we can have it with a godly life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He's not talking about money. He's talking about peace in our hearts and peace in our lives. For we brought nothing into the world. Everybody's naked when they're born. And it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having the basics of life, food and raiment, let us be there with content. And if we have any more than that, let's be really thankful to the Lord for it. And they that will be rich, here's a word to the rich. Now, never does the Bible say it's wrong to be rich. 
It encourages, in fact, the acquisition of wealth in life to work hard and to save money and to be prudent in your spending and to, and to prosper. But there is a warning for rich people because rich people have temptations that poor people don't have. They that be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts translate that desires, which drowned, have the potential of drowning men in destruction and perdition. And the love of money, that's covetousness. It's just a different way to describe it. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some, there's our word, coveted after Covetousness caused people, drew people into, uh, drew people into things that they erred from the faith and brought sorrows into their lives. I wrote in the back of one of my Bibles, and it was from my daddy that I picked it up, a phrase I'll never forget, and it's so wonderful. The things of time cannot satisfy a heart that was made for eternity. The things of this world cannot satisfy the heart that was made for eternity. John D. Rockefeller was the first billionaire in American history. He founded the Standard Oil Company, Exxon, today. And the Rockefellers became the richest family in all of America. And he's... Somebody was interviewing him and said to him, John D., that's what they called him, John D., tell me how much money does it take to make a person satisfied, to make a man happy? And Rockefeller said, a little more, a little more. You're never satisfied with it, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The words of wisdom of our creator, the Lord. Number six, and lastly, teach your children about money. Probably the area that we least teach our children sometimes is teaching them how to handle money. And I hear parents say, well, my kids can't handle money. They throw money around. They don't know the value of a dollar. Well, did you, you, did you try to train them? Did you teach them? Did you teach them? Did you just think they were going to learn it by osmosis? Maybe you weren't such a good example. Who knows? Teach your children about money. Give them responsibilities. And then pay them for the responsibilities. Teach them personal responsibility by giving them chores. Don't give them money. Let them earn their money. Give them little things to do. Wash the car. Take out the trash. And then pay them for it. And then teach them to manage it. Now, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, before I close. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. And he that hath no money... Come, buy and eat. Come and buy without money and without price. And so our Lord says today, there's one thing that you can have without money and without price, and as the wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ offers to us. We often say to people, 
Come and get saved. Salvation is free. Wrong. Salvation is not free. Salvation is free to me, but oh, the price that was paid for salvation. It's the most expensive thing in all of human history, is it not? But the Bible gives you that invitation. Come and buy without money and without price. And Jesus Christ can be your Lord and your Savior today. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.